Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This show is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Basically. I am your host, Stephanie Preisner, and today we are starting a series that you guys have asked for, giving some insight into abortion services in Ireland and across the world, the rights of uh, women and pregnant people in that, ha- that have changed in Ireland since 2018 and how those rights are being revoked in other parts of the world. Just to give you uh, a bit of a trigger warning, The first part of this podcast is with the journalist Jade Wilson from the Irish Times who's been covering uh, abortion rights for a number of years. And the second part of the podcast is a story from a woman who had to travel from Ireland to the UK for abortion. She tells her story, why she had to travel. And uh, if that's not for you or that's something that you might find upsetting, just take care of yourself. Don't listen to this episode maybe and uh, come back another week. Joining me now to discuss the data around abortion services in Ireland since 2018 is Jade Wilson from the Irish Times. Hiya Jade, thanks for joining me. Hi Stephanie, thanks for having me. Jade, would you talk us through the figures for, um, for I guess, the status of abortion before it became legal in Ireland and how the legislation has changed things uh, for, for women in Ireland? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so prior to the legalization of abortion here, uh, about over 3000 people left Ireland every year for abortions. Um, those are the figures uh, kind of provided in addresses when people travel to uh, England for abortions. So that might not take into account the number of people here at home who were having unsafe abortions uh, or requesting abortion pills from websites online. Um, but since 2019, so when the um, the act was passed and and things came into effect at the start of January that year. Um, there have been over six thousand abortions uh, here per year. So last year, uh, in twenty twenty one, there were four four thousand five hundred roughly uh, reported to the Department of Health, which is about two thousand fewer than than normal. Um, but that could be, you know, a somewhat inaccurate figure. Um given the pandemic and, and the restrictions and stuff at the time and, and some concerns about whether uh, all of all of the abortions that were carried out were actually being reported. Um, but there are also still women travelling. Would it be the case that they're not being reported because of because they're trying to be clandestine about it or just because the HSE hack happened or why do they think that the 2000 cases weren't reported? Yeah, it's hard to say. Um, I mean, it could be due to the fact that, you know, the pandemic was going on at the time and the system was under strain. And as you say, it did also coincide with the time of the HSE cyber attack. But um, basically, overall, there were 
were there were concerns about whether GPs had submitted full notifications and um, because GPs and hospitals uh, are legally obliged to notify the Department of Health of each abortion and, and on the grounds that it was provided. Um, so, you know, there are some concerns about why why that wasn't happening, but it's not really clear uh, why. While there were over 4,000 abortions recorded at the time, um, the HSE data did did show that GPs actually submitted claims for reimbursement uh, for over 6,000 consultations, uh, second consultations for abortion care under the, the primary care reimbursement scheme. So I think that would probably more, more accurately uh, reflect those figures for that year. So we're saying that based on the number of reimbursements that GPs and etc applied for we can assume that it's still in around the 6000 mark that's happening per year um but exactly yeah am i right in saying that last year over 200 women still had to travel to the uk for abortions yeah that that was reported uh, by the irish family planning association who keeps who keep track of that um, each year and they did say that over over 200 people travel to England yeah and, and obviously that wouldn't count you know how many people traveled elsewhere as well or who requested abortion pills and that sort of thing but um, yeah 200 was roughly the figure. Why is it that people are still having to travel if the whole point of repeal the 8th was that we would be able to provide safe medical abortions here on this island? Yeah, so the most obvious reason is probably because of the restriction on the on the number of weeks at, at which you can have an abortion. Um, you know, here you can have an abortion up to 12 weeks without, I suppose, having to provide a reason for that. And after that, it becomes a lot more restrictive. Um, but others are, are traveling after receiving a diagnosis of a fatal fetal anomaly. Um, so here, if if two doctors can't guarantee, you know, with absolute certainty that the baby will die quickly enough to satisfy legislation, which basically states that there has to be, you know, a reasonable belief that the fetus won't survive longer than 28 days, then parents will often have to travel to England and, and elsewhere for abortions. And the 28 day element is really restrictive, a, a very high bar to set on doctors um, who would probably be quite reluctant to provide that certification because they're criminally liable if they're deemed to have gotten it wrong, essentially. Um, and, and that whole process as well can can take five or six weeks, you know, with all of the assessments involved in actually determining that. So that can also take the, the person over the 12-week mark, um, which might lead them to make the decision to travel to access abortion. There also isn't any provision for parents whose baby's conditions are not fatal, but, um, you know, might have really quite severe or, or catastrophic conditions um, and then the, there's the three-day wait period which, which a lot of the uh, pro-choice choice side would be calling to have removed um, because they'd say that th- this might force some people to travel as well because it can result in delayed care um, and, and also miss their 12-week their limit. So just to dig into that a little bit um, I'll go back first of all so if you are pregnant with a, a fetus or baby that has a fatal fetal abnormality, but two doctors cannot say for sure that it that it will die within twenty eight days of being born. You cannot have a termination here. You have to travel to terminate that pregnancy. 
Yeah, essentially. Um, or you would have to wait uh, and, you know, carry out the, the, the pregnancy. That Those are kind of your two choices there. Um, you know, there's a recent HSE report earlier this month um, that said the current legislation is having, you know, is falling short of uh, women's needs and, and is having a chilling effect on, that was a quote from them, a chilling effect on healthcare providers as well, um, largely due to that, because, you know, two different doctors have to guarantee that the the fetus would die with either before birth or within 28 days and they have to be able to certify that with you know a, a really strong a really high bar um and, and they face a criminal sanction if they breach that so, so that would make a lot of doctors reluctant um you know if they sign that off and they're wrong they're criminally liable and, and a prison sentence can apply i think that's up to 14 years so it's quite a difficult position to put a doctor in um and it's so specific um and you know it it is two clinicians have to sign off on it but there's a whole kind of team there of of experts as well um, a multidisciplinary team that could you know interpret that differently so while even if two doctors say you know okay we have a reasonable belief that the fetus would not survive longer than 28 days after birth um then they, they might still be reluctant to actually sign that off I, I know there's an argument you know how would you actually know if if a person has an abortion how can you actually know that for certain anyways um but there's just a lot of research into fetal medicine at the moment and you know you might have experts looking at that afterwards who you know then doctors are fearful that they might make a complaint to the medical council or you know they might be called out by a colleague and so on so it, it does make uh, a lot of doctors fearful um because you know they're taking a risk there in terms of their career and i suppose their liberty um so yeah it does it does kind of leave parents with with that you know difficult um situation where they have to decide whether they're they'll carry to full term or they'll they'll travel for an abortion and presumably that say if uh, a fatal fetal abnormality is identified at let's say 16 weeks just to pick a number mm-hmm. presumably this this process of getting the doctors to agree and sitting before a council all that kind of stuff it's this is taking many weeks and so a woman is being forced to continue with a pregnancy where she's potentially starting to show people are starting to be aware and I guess I'm just trying to, the time that's involved in this is so traumatising for the woman, which is like even yeah, far more absolutely. than the three day cooling off period that we have for the pre-12 weeks. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I, that was actually included. Uh, I think there was a case study in the HSE report uh, as, about that as well, about a woman who was kind of, you know, she was starting to show and um, was afraid of, you know, going to playgrounds and, and things like that with her children because she didn't want people to be congratulating, pe- you know, her on her pregnancy when you know, she she wasn't going to be able to have the have the child. Um, it is probably quite traumatizing and. Um, as you say, it, it takes a long time. You know, there's there's the three day wait period from the outset that that everybody has to go through. But then you're going through all of these assessments to determine whether, you know, this pregnancy will last or whether the baby will survive after it's born. So um, it, that can take weeks. Um, so, you know, not only might that bring you over the limit of when an abortion is legal here, but as you say, it's also possibly quite distressing for for the parents. And the three day wait period is if you are 
if you find out that you're pregnant and you go to a doctor and you say, I want termination, they're going to say to you, you need to wait three days just to make sure that you're not rushing into this. Is that what the three day period is or is there a reason for it to be three days? Yeah, essentially that that is it. Um, when you go to a GP or a doctor um, seeking an abortion or after you've determined that you're pregnant, the GP has to certify that you're no more than 12 weeks pregnant. Uh, so that's kind of one of the main reasons for it, because the law states that there must be three days between being certified and having the procedure to determine that it's it's essentially to ensure that you're not having an abortion past the the 12 week limit um, because then all of these restrictions come into play um, about whether your life is at risk or your health is at risk or that of the fetus so yeah it's 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 also intended though to give you time to decide if if you actually want to go ahead with the procedure which a lot of you know pro-choice campaigners would say is uh, um, unfair and, and possibly demeaning you know if you've made that decision uh, there, there isn't actually any evidence that it, it uh, a three day wait period results in people changing their mind, uh, and actually it can just be quite distressing instead having to wait such a a long few days. I suppose it would feel like at, uh, in in those circumstances um, before you can actually access a, a procedure or or abortion pills. It could also be the three days that tips you over the edge to being over twelve weeks, or you know you present on a yeah on exactly a, you present on a Wednesday. And they say, oh, you have to wait three days, but also we're closed at the weekend. So then you come back Monday and then you're over 12 weeks. Um, Do they take the 12 weeks from the day you come in or the 12 weeks after the three day period? Yeah, so the way it works is um, the 12 weeks of pregnancy is is around uh, 10 weeks since conception. That's the way the Act defines it. Um, So... You know, pro-choice campaigners would say that that's very restrictive, and they would say that 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 wait period should be scrapped because of that. Because you know, um, some people they might already be close to the limit when they find out they're pregnant, um, such as teenagers or women who have regular uh, menstrual cycles, um, and so then combined with the mandatory three-day wait, the the time frame for abortion could be very narrow for some people. Um, because 10 weeks conception is is very early and a lot of people wouldn't find out until that point. How do pro-life groups feel about the numbers of abortions that are being carried out now? Do they still have a, a loud voice in this? Yeah, well, there have been a lot of protests recently, especially since um, the US uh, Roe v. Wade decision um, in the Supreme Court to overturn access to abortion. There were large um, protests after that. Um, in terms of how the they feel about the numbers and and the current legislation um you know when the last figures were reported the the anti-abortion side have condemned the number of abortions happening in ireland they they basically have claimed that there was a promise at the time of the referendum in 2018 that abortions would be rare after uh legalizing abortion here so and they say that the figures are too high now um but in reality the figures are probably the same or or possibly lower um, than repeal because when you take into account people traveling and having unsafe abortions at home um, it probably does kind of level out Um, on on the other side though the the pro-choice side would say that those figures don't include the number of people who are still denied access to you know some of the because of some of the restrictions and and barriers um, under the current legislation so um, but to to get back to your question about whether the pro-choice side still have uh, I suppose influence or, or, or you know power um, I think there seems to be a, a sort of 
they're galvanized by the the decision in the US and there have been more protests and a lot more calls online for you know campaigning again to have to have especially with this review coming up um this three year review uh there'll be a lot of submissions from um you know the anti-abortion side to have changes that actually bring in more restrictions in late July there was an announcement that uh Stephen Donnelly the minister for health was going to uh, passed this law to make these safe access zones where people couldn't protest within 100 metres of a clinic that was, uh, you know, giving medical or surgical abortions. I thought that this was a law that had already been passed, certainly promised during the time of repeal. Why has it taken so long and where are we in terms of those rights or those uh, protections now? Yeah, it's a huge concern and it was at the time as well. There was a lot of talk about, you know, concern about harassment and intimidation outside of healthcare centres that are providing abortion um, because we've seen that happen in, in lots of other countries where abortion is legal, um, you know, particularly in some of the states in the US, uh, you know, there's lots of name calling and threats and those kind of posters that we're all so familiar with, with graphic images um, and things like that. So, um, you know, pro-choice campaign were campaigning from the beginning for um, safe access zones uh, or exclusion zones and still are, uh, which is basically, it's basically a designated area, as you say, of 100 metres where protests and, and demonstrations are prohibited. So it means that patients and healthcare workers and, and anyone else passing through the, the area can do that without being being um, intimidated or harassed um, and it has taken a long time for for that to actually get anywhere um, that just to say actually um, includes um, you know it could it could include fines or or uh, jail time uh, but starts with a warning from Gardaí if, if people uh, continue to do that outside those healthcare facilities once that's in effect but um, it has taken a long time uh, and three years of talking about it essentially. Can I just ask you before we finish, um, how do you think the three year review is going to go? Do you think that it will become uh, more accessible as a as a service or do you think it will become more restrictive based on what's been happening? Yeah, it's hard to know. Um, it does seem like the the way things are going is to include the suggestions of a lot of uh, pro-choice campaigners. So, for example, the fact that the safe um the safe access zone is already coming into effect um seems to be following those suggestions um it, the, it's not really clear what will be followed the review is is not completed yet so it's due to be completed in the autumn um and that that was promised 3 years ago as well as as part of the legislation being passed but um there will be submissions from both sides and those will all have to be kind of looked over a lot of um Pro-choice campaigners have particularly uh, asked that the three-day access, uh, the three-day wait period for access to abortion be scrapped. Um, but at the same time, anti-abortion campaigners have opposed that. So um, that'll be interesting to see as well. Um, I'm not sure which way it, it will go, to be honest. But We'll keep an eye on it and uh, we will have you back on when that review is completed. Jade Wilson, thank you so much for, for joining me and giving us that context. 
taking a break from the show to tell you about our sponsor, humdingermortgages.ie, your new gaff without the faff. Humdinger are an award-winning mortgage brokerage and they specialise in finding the right mortgage for you. The best part is that you deal with the broker and they deal with every major bank in the Irish market so you don't have to trawl around talking to loads of people. They also make the best recommendation on what's the best way to proceed for you specifically and they stay at your side to help you at every step of the way from application to drawing down your mortgage. They're in the mortgage business, right? Not the application business. They have absolutely no interest in putting you through the ringer and getting you to fill out loads of forms without getting a mortgage at the end. And they're really honest from the get-go about what the problems might be with your application. But then they don't abandon you. They will stay by your side and give you the best advice on how to make sure that you are successful the next time you apply. They specialise in helping first-time buyers, people looking to trade up and people like me who are looking to save ourselves some money by switching our mortgage for a better rate. And like for me, I'm going to switch my mortgage. I'm working with Humdinger because like a reduction of even 0.5% on my mortgage rate can save me like 30 grand in interest over the whole term of my mortgage. Mortgages are the biggest financial decision you are ever going to make. So take advantage of speaking to experts and go to humdingermortgages.ie to begin your journey. So while I have you, I'm going to take the opportunity to um, take you hostage for a minute and tell you about the merchandise that we are selling. We have notebooks and pens, which are branded with the basically branding and you should buy them. You should buy them because it's a lovely notebook. Who doesn't need a notebook? If you are a Headstuff podcast member, if you buy the notebook, you get the pen for free. It supports me. It supports the podcast. It supports the producers, the people who work on the show and means that we can continue to make these podcasts and give them to you for free. If you want to become a Headstuff podcast member, if you get a lot from the podcast and you think, God, I'd like to support Stephanie and the podcast, you can become a Headstuff podcast member for €5 plus VAT. uh, Or you can give more if you want to. Go to headstuffpodcast.com and you can click register there and you pick a podcast. You can pick up to three podcasts. If you pick three podcasts, what happens there is that the €5 that you're giving gets split between the three podcasts that you're supporting. Or you can pick just one podcast, say you pick my podcast, then you'll get my bonus material for free and all of the bonus material for all of the other podcasts on the network. So it's a really, really good deal. Five euro, all of these special podcasts. So if you want to do that, do it. I'll be very, very grateful. The people who are in the community, the Headstuff podcast members are my favourite people. They support the podcast. They mean that you can listen to this podcast for free. It's five euro a month. I'm going to stop talking now, but I really appreciate your support. Thank you. Oh, and also, if you cannot afford to support the podcast, but you want to support the podcast, you can also give us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a good review or share the podcast with two other people. That's it. Just send the podcast to two other people who will listen to it, who you think will benefit from it. That helps to get our listeners up, which helps us get sponsorship. It's all how it works. And uh, yeah, I'd be really grateful if you do that too. Bye. Fireside is the Irish storytelling podcast. Every week you'll hear tales of mythic Irish gods, Arthurian knights or Norse Vikings. There is folklore from Ireland and around the world, and even historical legends like Brian Baru and Grainne Whale. Whether from poetry or prose, lyric or legend, if there is a good story at the heart of it, you'll find it here. I'm Kevin C. Olihan. I'm your host and fireside bard. With over 150 episodes and rising, there has never been a better time to join us by the fireside. So as we previously spoke about, one of the things that is still limited by our abortion laws in Ireland is TFMR, termination for medical reasons in certain circumstances. 
and someone who has a lived experience of this is joining me now to share her story. Anne-Marie, thank you so much for agreeing to to share with the listeners um, your story. You're welcome. Um, I think it's good to have the opportunity to share it. I think it says a lot that people are willing to talk about it and it's been spoken about at, you know, at such a public level. It feels, feels like a real shift. You know, not certainly not something that I would have heard people talking about before before I went through it last year. Absolutely. Um, it's not something that people, it was a huge part of the, a huge part of the debate when we talked about abortion before the referendum was, it seemed to be this idea that people who got abortions were being somehow irresponsible in their sexual proclivity and and that and that the fetus was then paying the price yeah. for that and left out of the discussion was this cohort of people who unfortunately are still having to travel do you want to tell us um about just take us back so you found out you were pregnant had you been trying for long before you got pregnant yeah so um if i start i guess this time two years ago now um my husband my now husband and I moved home from London so we'd be living in London for about five and a half years uh COVID was kicking off and and it was kind of time to come home we were getting married in in the September and we knew that you know after we had gotten married and we were settled somewhere that it was it was kind of the next thing on our our to-do list if you like was to start our family um so we started trying in kind of January 2021 and we were really really lucky we got pregnant quite quickly so we got pregnant in March um and I think you know there's so much conversation now about miscarriage that I think a lot of people who get pregnant have that that kind of fear and there's this whole kind of 12 week thing and you need to wait until you're safe so you know we went into that hopeful but you know still a little a little bit guarded um had an early scan everything looked great had another scan then at, at 11 weeks and found out that that our baby had no heartbeat so that was our our kind of first loss um we had what's called a dnc after that um and it's i think you know the, that that kind of precursor to to the the termination is relevant because when we had that loss, it was very much billed as, you know, this happens one in four pregnancies. It's probably nothing. Wait until your cycle kicks back in and, and, and go try again. And and we kind of thought, yeah, fair enough. You know, there are a lot of a lot of people who go through this. It's not uncommon. The idea Was there much bereavement support at that time for for, for you guys? I think one thing that was was really, really positive is is we were given the option of, of kind of a burial, which wasn't something we had expected. So um, Hollow Street have a plot in, I think it's in Glasnevin, um, where, you know, if there are pregnancy remains and there, there aren't always, depending on how far along you are, that, you know, there is, is, a, is a burial and there's kind of a place that you can go and there was a lot of support offered. I think we kind of thought, very naively, you know, that's our loss. A lot of a lot of people unfortunately probably go through one. We've kind of gotten it out of the way, if you like, and, and we'll go again. You know, we were I remember sitting in um sitting in a room in Hollis Street with the doctor and, and almost trying to find a reason for why it happened. Because I think that's just natural, right? Your body has yeah. done what it's not supposed to do. You want to know why, especially if if you're kind of actively trying to have a baby and um, you know, I put forward some of some kind of medical family history that that might have have been a reason why it happened, and it was very much 
don't worry about it you know off you go and try again and um, we did and we were again you know very lucky and I, I'm very aware even though we've gone through a, you know that those two losses last year we were able to get pregnant and you know there are a lot of women who who kind of have have real struggles around that so we got pregnant again in July and we were obviously very nervous getting you know pregnancy after losses is um a whole kettle of fish you don't you don't get excited you, you kind of keep it to yourself and we had an early scan at eight weeks so again something Hollis Street offers after you have have a loss is they will bring you in for an early scan so typically you won't be scanned until 12 or 13 weeks but they do offer that extra support which which is great because you know some people will have the means to go and get a private scan and we did that in our first pregnancy but being able to have that reassurance was great so we had that scan at about eight weeks we then had another actually private scan at 12 weeks as part of something that's called a harmony test and Harmony test is a blood test that checks for kind of chromosomal issues. So I think we were, you know, perhaps a little bit on edge. Obviously, after the first loss, we wanted to understand and, and find out really as soon as possible if everything was going to be okay. Did they do any genetic testing on the first loss on the no. pregnancy? No. And they don't. And I think as a rule, they don't really offer further support until you've had three losses. Three. Okay. Yeah, which at the time you think God going through one was was horrible. The idea of having to do that to a do second, this twice a again to get some support third time and then get that support is is very difficult. Um, so we kind of you know were incredibly fortunate that we were able to almost take that into our own hands. So we had that scan privately at twelve weeks and everything was fine and we got to hear the heartbeat and it was such a relief. You kind of think you know twelve weeks, twelve weeks, everything's fine. You know that's what people tell you. We made it. We made it. Um, and it was only at that point then that we told our parents because we, you know, you, I think you feel a weight of responsibility with with telling people about a pregnancy that you almost don't want to have to take away their good news. And, you know, we certainly, certainly felt that. Um, so we had the scan at 12 weeks in a, a private clinic and that was, that was great. We heard the heartbeat, everything's fine. We told our parents and we kind of went, gosh, this you know, this is, this is it, it's all going to be fine. We're going to have, you know, great pregnancy experience. We're going to get to have our baby. Did the Harmony test include a, bl- a blood test as well for those yeah. three cr- chromosomes? Yeah, so essentially what they do is they do a scan to make sure that, that everything is okay and then they do a blood test. And they send the blood test to a clinic in, um, in the UK. So again, you know, I think this highlights the lack of availability of some of that genetic testing in Ireland. Certainly, the research we've done in the last few months has shown that, uh, you know, a lot of that stuff has to be outsourced to the UK and that comes at great expense. And um, if you're going down the private route and with massive waiting lists, if you're going, if you're going publicly, public, yeah. yeah. Um, so then a week after that 12 week scan, I had my first, what's called your kind of booking appointment in Holly Street. And that's where you're like officially, um, kind of logged into their system. It's your first official scan. They do kind of your bloods and your, your weight and your height and they do kind of an in-depth scan and because we had had that you know positive scan a week before also bearing in mind all of this happened during COVID which comes with a whole other raft of issues which you could probably do a whole separate conversation on I went to the appointment on my own because I thought well you know we were in the hospital a week ago everything was fine and it was during that scan that the sonographer was 
kind of making me move around a bit. She said the baby was being kind of a bit sluggish. And I said, you know, is that something to be concerned about? And she said, no, that's not something to be concerned about. But there is there is something else that that I, I need to investigate a little bit further. You're kind of lying there with your, you know, your belly out in a room by yourself. And the, you just think, God, like what? What, what is, what is it this time? Now? Um, so she said that that what she saw on the scan is is quite a bit of fluid on the back of the baby's head and neck. And I didn't know what that meant, and I kind of said, "Well, what what could that be?" And you know, obviously and correctly, they are very slow to to kind of start putting diagnosis on things, especially in that moment. You know, they're just seeing something; they don't know what it is. They don't want to start telling you what it is. But then you're in this moment where where you know the worst case scenario immediately starts running through your head um so at the time we were doing our checking appointment with the semi-private um part of Hollis Street so the stenographer brought me into the next room where I was having kind of my blood done and the next part of my appointment and in the meantime she went into the main hospital up to um the fetal medical part of Hollis Street and that basically deals with fetal medicine so any medicine involving the kind of fetus while while you're still pregnant and I <laughs> sat there with this poor girl who was trying to do my bloods and I was just, you know, eyes leaking everywhere, kind of just just panicking, just thinking, gosh, what what could it be? You know, it's early days. Did they give you any indication of like what it could be? Or she's saying like, oh, I don't really <sighs> she I mentioned can't tell you. she mentioned a few things that it, it could be and she then gave me the opportunity because you obviously have to have a, a full bladder during these scans. So she kind of said, you know, pop to the toilet, then come back and get your bloods done. So obviously I'm, you know, phone out, Googling. Googling. And, which is terrible. It's never, never a good idea. Um, so she went up to fetal medicine, arranged appointment for us to come back next week with a um, kind of a really experienced stenographer who would be more kind of in-depth at you know, the type of scan that you would do at your like your kind of 20 week big scan 20 where they week anomaly scan, yeah. organs and all that. Um, yeah, and I, I, I was sent home and I, I remember having to call my husband outside the hospital and go, there's, there's something wrong. And, you know, standing on your own outside Hollow Street like that is it's horrific. And there's, you know, there's such ongoing issues, even all of these months later with with them um, partner access and in the med- in the maternity hospitals. Um, but when I got home in the meantime, I went, OK, I wonder if there's something in our harmony test that might be able to give us a little bit more information. So I rang the private clinic that had done that testing and our test results weren't available yet, but they were fantastic. And they rang the clinic in London and they were able to get the um, the kind of senior professor of that that surgery called me that evening and said, yeah, look, there is the test results are showing that there is a high likelihood of there being a chromosome issue here. And I said to him, you know, that coupled with the fact that on the scan, the sonographer is seeing kind of this issue with the the kind of fluid at the back of the head. Does the combination of those two things feel like it's quite a high likelihood? Because, of course, at this stage, you know, the the blood tests are, are indicative, a scan, things can change. You know, it's it's not impossible that there will be fluid that as the baby continues to grow, the brain is reabsorbed exactly yes. and, and he kind of said look I'm not I haven't seen the scan I'm only looking at these blood test results but those two things in combination would suggest that there that there is an issue 
and you just think god you know second second time in six months you're being faced with the potential kind of loss of a baby and and I was talking to my husband about it this morning about you know when did we realize that that this was gonna end how it ended and I I feel like we both got to that point really quickly and you know it's potentially because we had had the loss just a few months earlier that we were almost like prepared for worst case scenario um had they told you were they saying that the worst case scenario here was that this pregnancy wouldn't sustain or had they told you that you're going to have to terminate? So not at that point. So they made um, an appointment for us to go back in and meet the doctors in the fetal medical ward in Hollow Street a few days later. So I think the initial, you know, that bad scan, as I call it, was on the Thursday. We went back in on the Tuesday. So you've got this weekend. It's a long weekend. It's a long weekend of kind of, you know, again, Googling. and, And again, the one of the most difficult parts of all of this is you're still pregnant, still going through the symptoms. You're still progressing. You're still, you know, your body is still changing. You're st- still got the exhaustion and the sickness and that's progressing against the backdrop of knowing you're going to very likely lose your baby is mentally very, very difficult. Um, so we went back in to Hollis Street then on the, um, the Tuesday and I, I can't say enough good things about Hollis Street. There is there is a lot of negativity in this world about the kind of medical infrastructure in healthcare Ireland and healthcare. Us, yeah. Look, there are issues, but the people in those hospitals on the ground are angels. So again, it was, you know, very much peak COVID. They arranged a separate room that meant that my husband could come in and wait with me and we could wait in a private room, which was which was fantastic. The stenographer who had done my scan a few days before made a point of coming up to see me to see how I was. Um, And we were brought in to that scan, which again was a more detailed scan, kind of problem solving, you know, looking for issues. And we were told that the issue had 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 actually progressed since since just a few days beforehand and that the severity of it meant that there was a very high chance that we would lose the pregnancy in the coming weeks um and in a way and this is it it was a very strange feeling at the time it's a bit strange to say out loud but there's almost a little bit of relief of the certainty of the situation I know Mm -hmm. with with kind of termination for for medical reasons there's there's a lot of talk of choice and what choices you have but actually for a lot of women and certainly in our situation there, there wasn't a choice they were very clear that that this baby wasn't going to survive the full nine months never mind being born and at least that kind of gave us a well look we know what's going to happen the the kind of the challenging bit was how how it was going to happen so they discussed our options um we were told what did they tell you so we were told that the case was likely to, to meet the the kind of necessary legislation in Ireland for a termination. But what they also said is that to get to that point, you kind of have to jump through quite a few hoops. So we were 13 and a half-ish weeks pregnant at that point. We were told they'd probably let the pregnancy go for a few more weeks to see how things progressed. You would also need... Um, more invasive testing so whilst the the blood test I had for the harmony test tests 
my blood, knowing that the baby's blood is kind of mixed into it, the more invasive testing actually tests blood from the fetus. So they either go and um, kind of in intravaginally or kind of through your stomach to get the test directly from the baby. And, it, you know, it wasn't certain. I think, you know, the specifics around the legislation means that it, it has to go to kind of the senior team in Hollis Street who you basically have to, this is the big issue with it, basically have to debate your body and your your kind of medical needs and decide what they think is best for you. Regardless of the fact that, you know, there was such certainty in the scan and in the blood test that we'd had of, of where the situation was going was gonna to end. So it was... It was suggested to us that if we had the means kind of financially, that that actually it would be easier to travel. So it like emotionally and yeah. t- like you wouldn't have to carry the pregnancy for several yeah. more weeks. And now we kind of naively thought, okay, well, this was this was a Tuesday, you know, maybe we could get it done on Friday and and it would be we could kind of end it. And I know that that sounds very, very blunt, and I'm sure you know somebody that hasn't gone through it might think that it's almost it's it's a bit cold but you just think no you're in a process I need this yeah. to be over yeah so that I can move on to processing yeah it. exactly and I, I think when you're the biggest it. fear I had was was feeling the baby move I didn't I didn't want the pregnancy to progress enough that I would start to feel the baby move because then it's a whole you know that's a whole other it's a whole, a other, whole psychological other psychological shift yeah um so we decided that's what we would do. Now we we were given we were given information. It's it's really interesting. Uh, Hollow Street will you know were supported us to make that decision. They can't go and obviously book the procedure for you. So you have to do that yourself. But they can tell you where to go. They can give you some information about what that's going to look like. So there was no point where we kind of felt abandoned in it. It was very much like they supported us as much as was legally allowed even if you, if you wanted to go that far but there was a two-week wait to be able to have that session that that appointment in the UK so that appointment was made then for the 5th of November in London um but such was the severity of our case that they kind of thought there there is a chance that the baby won't actually survive until then so they brought us in twice maybe three times in between that that scan and, and the actual date of traveling to make sure that the heartbeat was still there and to see if if kind of you know nature had, had kind of taken over and, and and taken that decision out of our hands and um but it hadn't and again when you were when you were going in for those scans were you hoping yeah. that it would have yeah. yeah and that's again that's a very difficult emotion to kind of lie there pregnant after after having a loss hoping they won't find a heartbeat having a loss hoping that your baby has no heartbeat is is very difficult it yeah you know the whole there's just so many conflicting emotions in in the whole that whole journey were they offering any mental health support at that time they didn't but I feel like I knew it was there if I needed it okay so we traveled to London now in a way we were was this when Covid was like were you allowed to travel like, yeah. if, if it wasn't a medical thing yeah so again it had opened up again it was it was early November so it was the we, we travelled on the 4th of November I think so it was just before things had started to close down again and there's a lot of stories of of, of pregnant people having to travel in the peak of COVID and um, you know that's just a whole lot of complications we were lucky in a way that the travel was a bit more free we were also quite lucky that 
having lived in London for so long, we knew it very well. So we didn't have the added complexity of landing in a city we, we didn't know and not yes. knowing our way around. So, so yeah, we we travelled over on on the fourth and even the day I remember being in the airport and kind of walking to our gate and my husband's phone ringing and it was it was again Hollis Street just making sure we were okay making sure that our travel plans were all going going to plan and another thing they did which which we were incredibly grateful for is in between our first loss and and where we got to at the end of um October early November Hollis Street actually hired um a incredible genetic consultant who they hadn't had before so they didn't have somebody in-house that that was it was a geneticist and she had happened to come across our file or she had heard you know heard about it in passing because again it's it's quite rare I think about 200 women in Ireland last year traveled so you know it's, it's small numbers so you could imagine the you know the news of it happening perhaps spreads through the hospital and she also rang separately the day before we traveled to say that that she had arranged with the clinic for some of the some of the remains to be tested so that we could get that additional genetic testing and you know if she hadn't have been there you know there wasn't anyone else in the monastery who were able to offer that so you know that was that was incredible and and something that became a really important part of you know where where we are now um yeah, so we travelled. We were the the clinic they recommended is in Richmond, which is is kind of just outside London, but it means they're you know your accommodation choices are limited. So you're at the point where you feel a little bit like you're having to flee your country mm-hmm. and check into a rubbish little travel lodge hotel around the corner from an abortion clinic. And that's where you have to, you know, prepare yourself mentally and then recover. Um, so that, you know, that's very difficult, you know, not not being at home, not having your family around you, not being in your home comforts, having to kind of take a map out on the morning and go and find this clinic where something, you know, really emotional is going to happen. Just the logistical weight of that, I think, adds really added to the 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 emotional difficulty of what was already a very a very difficult experience um but we got to the clinic and and because they they were aware of our situation and again because they had had that communication from Hollis Street we were put into kind of a private room so we were given kind of extra support if you like around the day itself because obviously this is you know an abortion clinic there are people there for a wide range of different reasons but we were kind of treated with a little bit of extra sensitivity because because of the specific of our situation because of the circumstance yeah yeah um and we I had the procedure and and again lucky is not the word but the procedure I had was the you know the same procedure so it's essentially a DNC as I had had in May so you know I kind of knew what I was getting myself into which which helped how many weeks were you at this point 15 almost 16 yeah right okay so you know I had a little bump and you get this to the point where you just you, you can't look at your body and you've got this thing happening in your body and you can't you don't want to look in the mirror because you kind of you know it's that you're trying to disconnect yeah it's like your happening. brain is, yeah. is just trying to like let's just siphon that off and pretend like that's that's not what's happening so yeah we had had the procedure um had to go back to the travel lodge hotel to a tiny little bedroom and and recover um one of the big difficulties 
we we had with the situation was was what to do with the remains and it's just we were kind of told when we were booking it you know if you wanted to to bring them home or you wanted to do a cremation or a burial and I just it was too much to have to process that and figure out the logistics of that on top of everything else and it actually meant that we didn't bring the remains home and I and I feel like that's something that that's going to kind of come back and and maybe haunt me you know this idea of getting on a plane pregnant and coming home and and kind of leaving your baby in a different country you know there's it depending on how far you think about it you know having to leave it's just not it it feels very much like something that you shouldn't like that this country is putting you in that position like that's not something you should have to worry about on top of worrying about every other thing and really the fact that you have to as you said your words flee the country it's really framing it in a sense of like you're doing something wrong or you're doing something that you're not allowed to do in this country yeah. in the same way that people go to Amsterdam to smoke yeah. weed. You know, it's like, <laughs> it, it, it is yeah, that's, ab- we're above that. Mm, yeah. And, you know, the, the recovery was, was, was fine. You know, we flew back the next day and, and that was fine. And, and, you know, physically the recovery was, was pretty straightforward. And um, again, Hollis Street, we're, we're in contact to see that we got home safely. They arranged an initial follow-up appointment where they did like a follow-up scan to make sure that that all of the remains remains were gone, which is, you know, an, an important part of the process to make sure you don't get any infections or anything. And then they arranged the, the kind of follow-up genetic testing. So, you know, the idea that they, they're there, it's like they want to be able to offer this service and they're there mm-hmm. with you at every single point of that journey that they are allowed to be. But it's just that bit in the middle where you have to kind of get in a plane and again acknowledging the fact that we were lucky that we could afford it because it's it's expensive you know to, to have to go and pay for that procedure plus flights plus accommodation in a city like London where it's an expensive city and we didn't have a choice of going you know I kind of thought naively where we could drive to Hollyhead and we could go to Wales and then we'd be in the car and it'd be a lot more comfortable but you know you, do, you don't have that range of choices it's it's very much this is where you go and you got the impression from the clinic that they they were used to, to to taking care of women from Ireland who were put in this position where they had to leave their country. So yeah, that was then the in, in November and we had the kind of follow-up genetic testing and we got the results from that, which which did identify an issue, which is um again at least positive. You know, there are there are women who who spend years trying to conceive and, and they don't know why it's not working or they have multiple losses and they, they don't know what the issue is. We're in a position now where we know what, what the issue is and we know what our options are in terms of next steps. And we kind of took the first half of the year off even thinking about babies. I think, you know, by the time we had the termination in November, I think I had been pregnant for seven months of the previous 10 you know between being almost three months the first time four months the second time and you just think no let's just let's just part that you know your body needs yeah it's 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 too much yeah so that's where we're at now and I think what why I was so keen when you when you were looking for somebody to talk about is I I felt very strongly about the situation in recent weeks with all of the conversation about Roe versus Wade in the U.S. And people thinking, you're like, this is terrible. You know, America's going backwards and people are having to travel. And you're going, 
it's happening, happening it's every happening day. at home and you don't know and you know we it feels quite um I don't know what the word is but you know we got on a plane and we flew home to vote and then we had to get on a plane and fly back over to London because that thing that we came home to vote for isn't fit for purpose so limited yeah yeah um you know we're not in a better position and I don't think people know that and I know there's been work that's happening this year to to review the the position um of the eighth amendment there's you know even even for for abortions before 12 weeks you have to jump through hoops there's a three-day waiting period it's uh, it's it's only available in some hospitals, which I didn't realise. There are, I think, 19 or 20 maternity hospitals in Ireland and it is not available in all of them. So again, women are having to travel and there's just no control. You've got this, I felt incredibly uncomfortable with the idea that a board of people in Hollow Street would look at my case and decide what they were going to do with my body. That's what I find interesting in the whole thing. And it's because... My understanding is that it's because they legally have to stand over it. Yeah. So they are criminally liable yeah. if they make the wrong decision. So if that pregnancy could have survived and they said that it couldn't, then they're criminally liable mm. for that. And so as as a medical professional, you can see why they're, you know, crossing their T's and dotting yeah. their I's. But what's forgotten about uh, in, in all of that and what you've captured so heartbreakingly is that while those things are taking their time to be discussed, you are growing a pregnancy. You are starting to show people are starting to comment p- yeah. potentially, you know, that yeah. it's not. And, and when they say, oh, just come back in a week, a week is a phenomenally yeah. long time when you're in that sort of emotional state. Yeah. And it's a very strange, you know, even when we, we spoke over the weekend about this conversation, you, you kind of gave the option to be anonymous. And, and I don't I don't take this the wrong way, but there's almost a sense of, there's a, there's a very so- strong sense of shame around it because huge because huge and I think particularly online and we were talking on social media and obviously I would always give someone the option mm-hmm. to remain anonymous because of their job or whatever but sometimes people find that when they come forward that 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 people are so divided on mm-hmm. the issue of abortion that there is no room for grey area yeah. there is no like abortion is wrong that is it and TFMR is not like there's no space for that and and then there are other things like you were saying you didn't tell your family until 12 weeks sometimes people don't share these things with their family Mm. and so uh, then it would be like you know being anonymous would be important to people but the amount of shame around it is not helped by the fact that you have to travel it's 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 shameful it's so shameful that we don't even offer it in this country yeah it's like baked in, you yeah. know? Yeah. And I, so I, I, my work is based in London. So my employer is in London. And I was very open with them because I, you know, really struggled in the first trimester. So, you know, had to let work know just so I had a, a little bit of freedom to go lie down if I needed to. And having to explain to them that, oh, well, I'm going to have to get on a plane and, and go do this. And they're thinking, what? From, yeah. from Ireland? You're like, yeah, that's, you know that's it's not a privilege that that we're granted here and it was strange you know I I did tell you know close friends and family after the details of what happened and I feel very compelled to talk about it. and even today going through kind of the, the medical notes you kind of forget 
and like again I think your 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 brain does it to protect you how difficult it was and there's almost a sense of talking about it is it's just reminding you that that at the end of the day this this was was a baby that you know a much wanted baby that that you had to make a terrible decision about for your sake and and ultimately for for the baby's sake as well well thank you so much for sharing it I think there'll be people here who listening who had no idea that this was happening Mm -hmm. in Ireland that you know they voted there a few years ago we all had a celebration and now it's all dandy um but your story shows that we still have so far to go and we're still failing women and it's not the hospitals as you say like they absolutely want to be able to help you and they're doing so like at every Mm -hmm. step that they can but the law is still so restrictive and and we have so far to go yeah yeah and I think my my kind of final thoughts of it because I I remember moving into the recovery room after my procedure in November and there was a woman beside me and you know making a massive judgment here who was there for a different reason than I was and not one ounce of me felt any ill will towards her, you know, mm-hmm. having gone through that makes me feel even stronger that it doesn't matter why you want to do it. If it is the right decision for you and your body for whatever reason, then there's, you know, to live in a world where you're in, you don't have that control over something that's happening to your body is just, I think when you get this close to it, it, it really is mind blowing. Yeah, it, it does. It makes me feel really disturbed yeah. that you would force someone to yeah. continue yeah. Um, if, yeah. if, if they can't. Even like even when you say there like that they'd say, oh, come back next week. That week like that you're forcing yeah. someone to tolerate is it just yeah. very disturbing. Anne-Marie, thank you so very much. Um, yeah, it's... It, I'm sorry that, <laughs> that that happened to you and I'm sorry that uh, we haven't. And, and I hope that your story and other stories like it do make policy makers change their mind and make it a little bit easier because it's never going to be easy yeah exactly well thank you for the opportunity to talk about it I really appreciate it um and yeah hopefully you know there could be somebody at the other end of this who's who's going through it and I think hearing hearing somebody else's story is would have been very helpful so um yeah thank you very much This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.